Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. She was a very highly regarded and distinguished scientist, and she led a fairly quiet life. It was a complete shock when it was revealed that she had a, a life as an escort. Scientist Dr Brenda Page was brutally murdered in Aberdeen on July the 14th, 1978. On the night before her murder, she left work and returned home to her flat in the west end of the city. That evening, she went out for dinner at a local hotel. It was late when she got back home. She was brutally beaten about the head and died. And the following day, when she didn't turn up at work, I think an elderly neighbour opened the door at the request of colleagues at work and they found her body. Journalist Graham Smith told me in the first episode that Brenda had been dining with two men. They were businessmen and Brenda had been accompanying them as an escort. Newspapers at the time were quick to pick up on that. It just seemed to get all tied up in this escort business. That seemed to take prominence, you know. I think they called her a Jekyll and Hyde or something in the paper, and it was all just sickening to me. This is Murder in the Granite City, and I'm journalist Ruth Warrender. I've been investigating the murder of Dr. Brenda Page since 2018. Brenda was the head of the genetics department at the University of Aberdeen, but she had also been working as an escort. Why did she have this other job? Did it have anything to do with her murder? In this episode, I'll tell you what I uncovered, and I'll look at what the police revealed in their original investigation. Brenda arrived in Aberdeen in 1973 with her husband, Dr Christopher Harrison, known to her as Kit. She had graduated with a PhD from the University of Glasgow the previous year and had secured a job in the genetics department at the University of Aberdeen. Brenda and Kit bought a house together in the affluent west end of the city, but they divorced in 1977. Brenda had been living in her own flat, also in the west end of the city, for two years before she was found brutally murdered. Murders in Aberdeen would always be quite a big story. And then, of course, with the coming of the oil industry, you know, added to public interest. To help put things in context, I think it's important to paint a picture of what life was like in Aberdeen when Brenda lived there in the 1970s. The discovery of vast oil fields in the North Sea changed the face and the economy of Aberdeen. It was a time of massive upheaval for the city. Down the only complete Georgian Street, Marshall Street, 
comes the intense traffic down to the harbor quaysides. Helicopters take off of the North Sea oil rigs. Ships with names leaving no doubt what business they're in, they await orders. New pipelines are laid outside the city. Black gold is much in evidence at the docks of Europe's offshore capital. That's a commercial promoting Aberdeen to the world, voiced by actor Tally Savalas. He's best known as 70s TV detective Kojak, and he was friend star Jennifer Aniston's godfather. The fact that this small city in the northeast of Scotland could attract the services of a Hollywood megastar shows how the oil boom put Aberdeen firmly on the map. I was captivated by everything I saw. And I'll be back, well, that's for sure. In the meantime, so long, Aberdeen, and here's looking at you. Well, Telly Savalas didn't actually visit Aberdeen, but I'm here and we're just walking past the iconic Marshall College building. It's such an impressive building with its elaborate Gothic spirals soaring up to the sky. It's my favorite building in Aberdeen. It's gorgeous, it really is. And today it's just beautiful. It's sparkling in the winter sun. It's made from granite, which is the pale stone that the city is famous for. So we're just walking down to the end of the street and that is where the headquarters for Aberdeen City Council is based. Hi there, um, I'm just here to see the Lord Provost. Yes, I'll just go and contact him for you. You'd just like to take a seat. Thank you very much. I was there to meet Barney Crockett, who was at the time the Lord Provost of Aberdeen. I wanted to get his take on what the city was like in the 70s. Barney's lived there all his life. Yes, I grew up in Aberdeen a, a long time ago when it was uh, Britain's poorest city. We had low unemployment but very low wages, a very tough economy. Uh, the biggest single industry was fishing, long-distance fishing, not related to what we do just now. Uh, long, long way into the North Atlantic, into Iceland, Greenland, uh, Faroes. So it was a very, very tough way of life and uh, produced very tough people. And then we had the oil boom in the 1970s. How did that affect the Granite City? Well, it was a, a complete transformation, to be honest with you. I mean, not only had we this very tough way of life, but also Aberdeen was almost certainly Britain's most uh, inaccessible city. We had uh, almost everybody came, or, you know, everybody came from the same area. Uh, we had no long-distance immigration to Aberdeen. It was still losing population at that time, so we didn't have people coming from the West Indies or uh, South Asia. Um, so suddenly we had people coming in from abroad. That was one of the first shocks. It was just a case of, wow, investment, money. And Aberdeen had really honestly been in the doldrums for about 10 years because of the typhoid outbreak in 1964. It decimated the tourism sector. People were just scared to go near Aberdeen. And you know how sort of urban legends uh, sort of evolve because of things like that, scares like that. So it really, it was just kind of trundling along. And the fact of seeing all this money, and I think it was a case of let's just profit from this. That's local historian Dr Fiona Jane Brown. We'll hear more from her later. The Lord Provost told me what the discovery of oil meant for Aberdeen. Oil meant, you know, Texas. It meant Stetsons, cowboy hats, denims. All terribly exciting for us Aberdonians, but also, you know, massive opportunities to earn money, which we'd never seen before. And according to Alec Kemp, 
professor of petroleum economics at the University of Aberdeen, the American oil workers certainly made their mark on the city. They could be seen everywhere in the streets of Aberdeen with their big hats, big boots uh, and big voices. Yes, I'm Rick Meakin and originally from California and I was in the oil business. The Aberdonians and, and Scots in general are most welcoming. Uh, the Americans here were welcomed with open arms. I mean, you couldn't ask for friendlier people. Rick is one of the few Americans who still lives in Aberdeen. We met for a chat in a city cafe, and I asked him if he thought Americans had made a big impact. Oh, yes, big time. The impact of the Americans was astronomic upon the city. Uh, first off, Britain was in a, a, an economic depression at the time. This is pre-Thatcher. So unions are very strong, and the economy was really, really struggling. Uh, the pound had fallen dramatically. It was very, very uncertain times. So here come the Americans, all this money, and it really transformed the, the, the industry here. If you had an American accent here, you were automatically assumed to have a lot of money. And so it was very easy to meet, uh, meet women because you had all the things. You're American. Well, must be a movie star. And you had plenty of money. So Brenda Page, she signed up to an escort agency, mm-hmm. and that was revealed in the press after her murder. One of our Christmas uh, dues for the company, one of our engineers had a reputation for very, being very much of a, a ladies' man. And so he shows up with a very, very attractive blonde. And of course, everyone was curious. So once uh, his date went into the loo, all the women from the company went in to find out about what she was up to. And she said, oh, well, I'm, I'm an escort. And obviously he's paid me to, to, to come out and, and, and accompany him for this due. There's nothing seedy going on. Were there Americans that came over just for short trips? Yes. Of course, because not only were there people uh, living and working here, of course, a lot of people came for business. And obviously these would be guys on expense accounts, so they would be obviously well-to-do because they were in the oil business, so they had money. And obviously they had time, needed some company. So, yeah, that's, there was a lot of that. Essentially, we had an awful lot of men coming from uh, in a very quick period of time as a shortage of female uh, companionship. And I think people maybe just uh, paid, in this particular case, paid just to have a woman accompany them to events. Which, by all accounts, is exactly what Brenda was doing on the night before her murder. She was dining with two businessmen in the Treetops Hotel in Aberdeen. I thought Brenda was escorting because she was lonely and maybe find it hard to meet men after she split from her husband. But her friend Jessie Watt told me something else. She had very little money because he stayed in the marital home and all of her savings had gone into that marital home. So until he sold it and maybe split some money with her, she had nothing. So she was hardly able to pay her mortgage in Allen Street. She was really struggling at that stage financially, and that's when all this nonsense about the other job came in. That was desperation. So, according to Jessie, Brenda was escorting because she was struggling financially. All her money was tied up in the marital home, and her husband still lived there. So she had to take on the extra work to pay the mortgage on her own flat, even though she had a good job at the university. I'll delve a little deeper into Brenda's work as an escort in episode four. 
I'm from Aberdeenshire, and I know the Treetops Hotel, where Brenda dined with the businessmen, was very upmarket. That's a marked contrast to what Lord Provost Barney Crockett told me about the pubs in Aberdeen at the time. It was a very, very macho city. I mean, uh, the the bars were very memorable now. You would hardly believe what an Aberdeen bar uh, was like in the 70s. To find out, I paid a visit to the Bridge Bar, just off the main street in Aberdeen, to talk to some of the regulars. You maybe got a job offshore, working, you know, you made money, so you a few bob more, and that was it, and you just spent it on drink. Where was your favourite place to go? I would start at uh, the Castle Gate, work my way down to the shore, which is the dock area, and go along the pubs there, uh, come back, and then maybe try to go to the dancing if I was able. Every bar you went into, of course, the more drink you had. And some guys could hack a drink, others can't, you know what I mean? So it all depended. And you have to be courteous, some of your mates, you know, or they would get drunk quicker than you would. But, well, that was, just, that was a good stagger. It's last man standing, basically. Prior to the oil, there wasn't a lot of women in bars. And this one especially, I mean, you don't, don't know if you know this, but uh, there's no women's facilities in here. It tells you in the door. There's no ladies' toilets. It just says gentlemen, doesn't it? <laughs> I can see it here, it just says gentlemen. But you can still use it as long as there's a gentleman standing outside and not inside. <laughs> yeah, if you've got ladies coming in like yourselves, oh, there's a lot of women come in now. Here and the grill. The grill only got the uh, toilets in in 1995, I think it was. And it was all over the newspapers and everything because it, it didn't even serve women. Bars never served women, by the way. You weren't allowed in the bars. But in 1973, the year Brenda arrived in the city, that all changed when a group of women made a stand against the bar ban. Here's local historian Dr Fiona Jane Brown. Some of the women from the Scottish Trade Union Congress that were having their conference in Aberdeen that year decided to make a bit of a protest and they went to one of the pubs, the Grill, which is across from the music hall where they were meeting, and they ordered a drink and they were refused and they sat there and protested and said they weren't going to leave until they got a drink. And they didn't leave until the police threw them out, but they made their point. I met Fiona Jane in Fitty a historic fishing village down by the beach. Fitty, to give it its right name, because Foot D was an overcorrection by a 1789 mapmaker, is it consists of two and a half squares uh, of granite houses. Most of them are still sort of single-storey cottages that certainly the rows onto the sea. And we have North Square, South Square and Pilot Square. This is North Square. This is the first of the squares that was... Conservation status saved it from the same fate as Torrey Fishing Village. It was demolished to make room in the harbour for the ships servicing the oil rigs. The pretty cottages of Fitty sit in the harbour alongside an industrial area of the city. Pocrecy now uh, is filled with these great big blue containers, uh, plastic containers, and these brightly coloured um, 
supply ships and standby vessels for the oil industry. See them coming uh, up the navigation channel in the harbour, and it's, it is. It's I suppose people in the likes of Tyneside and that would have a similar experience to sort of living with harbour development all around them. So, so Dr. Brenda Page, she arrived in Aberdeen in 1973. Mm-hmm. What would it have looked like to her? Well. 73, again, it's two years before the oil comes ashore, and Aberdeen's still very male-dominated. That was the thing, the oil industry was still male-dominated, and all the other industries had been as well. So it was very much a man's city. They talk about Dundebum in the women's city because the jute industry, but it was still very much entrenched in the past. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I find is ironic because it wasn't until uh, Americans came that attitudes were given a shake-up and the American women that came over, they just didn't take it. They weren't going to take that kind of nonsense. But it's just that weird thing. It's just on the cusp of the change and there's women realising, hey, hey, we've had enough of this. Uh, and again, that's what she came to, a sort of city simmering with change to come and the oil industry was what pushed it. And Brenda had her own connection to the oil industry. Before her murder, she was working on a major government-funded project investigating the potential health risks of deep-sea divers in the North Sea. During my investigation, I learned her research could have put her in danger. I'll tell you more about that in episode five. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So the picture we have of Aberdeen in the 70s is of a city on the verge of a huge transformation as oil workers arrived to build the infrastructure to turn offshore oil into onshore energy. We didn't have a skilled workforce in the UK, so there was an influx of high-earning oil workers from America. So let's turn our attention now to the police investigation. We know that Brenda was working as an escort on the night of her murder, dining with two businessmen in an upmarket hotel in Aberdeen. 
Journalist Graham Smith told me the men were quickly eliminated as suspects. So what did the police find out? Were they following any leads? Did they uncover a motive for Brenda's murder? I wanted to find out what local newspaper reports said at the time, so I headed to Aberdeen Central Library. The city's connection to the oil industry was even in evidence there. The librarian who helped me with the archive was called Dallas. So you're looking at probably the 76 to 1980 mm-hmm. year. Perfect. So that's for the Evening Express, but um, we've got the computer, so the, I think it's a... So this is um, in the Aberdeen Evening Express, Monday the 17th, so that's four days after uh, Brenda was found killed in her flat. Um, and, yeah, so the Evening Express, that's where I started out my, my journalistic career. So... Um, Police believe the killer may have been lying in wait for her to return home after a night out. Um, yeah, so they're saying that detectives are almost certain that her attacker gained entry to her ground floor flat through a rear window. So I, I don't, I don't know why they're certain. In episode one, Brenda's friend Jessie told me that she kept the window at the back of her flat open for the cats. But journalist Graham Smith said the window could have been damaged to make it look as if it had been broken into. Okay, so she died from extensive head injuries, but nobody heard any screams. I told you in episode one, Brenda was murdered during the Aberdeen Fair fortnight, when many of the local businesses closed for two weeks and their staff took their summer holidays. So perhaps many of Brenda's neighbours were away at the time, and that's why nobody heard anything. Experts are having difficulty in establishing what type of weapon was used. A postmortem on Dr. Page's body has revealed that the instrument was around half an inch in width. Like a chisel? Or like a, a spanner? Ah, the instrument could have been used to get into the house. So from newspaper reports, it seems like someone broke into Brenda's flat. They didn't simply enter through a window that was left open. Five days after Brenda was murdered, police released a description of a man they wanted to interview. The man, believed to be in his mid-thirties, was seen in Allen Street in the early hours of Friday morning. He is described as five foot five to five foot eight tall, of stocky build, dark, tidy hair of medium length, and combed to the left. He may have had a moustache and was wearing slightly faded jeans and a dark jacket. A photo-fit image of this man appeared in the local press and 5,000 posters with his image were distributed throughout the city. It's the 70s, isn't it? So late 70s, he's got one of those kind of shaggy, kind of black haircuts, you know, with a kind of fringe. He's got quite, you know, he's got quite dark features, dark eyes, dark bushy eyebrows and a a really thick moustache. This man is wanted for interview. I wonder who called this in. Oh, here we go. A milkman, here we go. A milkman has helped police compile the photo fit composite of a man he saw leaving 13 Allen Street at 4.30 on Friday morning. He would have got a good look at him, as it would have been light at 4.30 in the morning in Aberdeen at that time of year. According to the Lord Provost, This information led Aberdonians to believe there would be a conviction for Brenda's murder. I think that people thought, well, with that level of knowledge, 
that, that you know, an arrest is bound to follow. And I think that, again, it's been part of the thing that's kept it in public mind in Aberdeen is that that surprise element that there was never a, a result there. Brenda lived in the west end of the city, an affluent part of Aberdeen. So I'm on Allen Street. It's a lovely broad, cobbled road uh, with, you know, lined with granite tenement flats. And I'm just standing outside number 13 right now. It's got a royal blue door. There's one main door to this block of flats. As far as I can see, there's six flats in there. There's six buttons on the buzzer by the door. So how did this milkman know that this man with a moustache that he saw leaving the main door on the morning after Brenda's murder was coming out of Brenda's flat. I mean, there's five other doors in there, there's five other flats, five other lives behind those doors. It could be a boyfriend, it could be a mate, it could be a brother, it could be just someone that's visiting for the weekend. We don't know. So the man in the photo fit could have come from another flat in Brenda's block. When I was in the library, I found a newspaper report from a year after Brenda's death that says police believe the man seen leaving Brenda's block of flats may have been reluctant to come forward because of personal embarrassment. So could he perhaps have been having an affair? Is that why he's never made himself known to police? I've got some crucial information about the man in the photo fit, but I'm holding it back for a later episode because I want to tell you what else I found in the newspaper archive. Around 50 uniformed officers have spent more than two days combing verges and fields on both sides of the main A92 Aberdeen to Stonehaven Road for clothing and the weapon. 25 detectives are also involved in the murder inquiries. That's a lot of detectives, isn't it? That's a lot. I mean, if you look at resources now, I mean, 25 detectives and how many... 50 officers. The original police investigation was led by Detective Chief Inspector James Ritchie of Grampian Police. A local paper carried a statement he made shortly after Brenda's murder. In the statement, Chief Inspector Ritchie, he said, so he said that nobody's in custody and I don't see the likelihood of anyone appearing in court immediately. And then he added... Police are appealing for information as to the movements of a dark green mini countryman car in the vicinity of Allen Street or the Aberdeen Stonehaven Road and roads adjoining, including the town of Stonehaven, during the evening of Thursday, July 13th or the early morning of July 14th. I did some more digging in the newspaper archive, and this is what I found out. The police were interested in this car as they believe someone drove it from Aberdeen to Stonehaven. That's a town on the coast about 15 miles south of Aberdeen. Parked the car and got on a train from Stonehaven to Edinburgh. Police issued an appeal to passengers who travelled on the 6.27am train from Aberdeen to Edinburgh on the morning of July the 14th to get in touch at the Murder Inquiry HQ. They said they had received a number of calls from passengers, but at that point, there were no significant developments in their inquiries. So it seems they were interested in someone who boarded the train with a green canvas duffel bag. That person may not have had the bag when they left the train in Edinburgh. 
There's a photo of a similar canvas duffel bag in newspaper reports. It's a bucket-shaped bag with what looks like a drawstring at the top. In the local paper, the Press and Journal, ten days after Brenda's murder, DCI Ritchie said, If we were to find this bag, we would be in a very strong position to make an arrest. It appears they believe the green duffel bag may have contained the murder weapon, shoes, clothes and a watch. Press reports also mention that a section of the train had been examined by forensic experts and a search had taken place, presumably for the missing duffel bag, along the Aberdeen to Edinburgh railway line. Searches also took place in the surrounding countryside and in the River Dee. It seems from press reports that this green duffel bag was never found and I couldn't find any mention in the newspaper archive of who owned the car, the dark green Mini Countryman. But I did find something interesting in a magazine. It's a souvenir magazine published in April 2017 by the local paper, The Evening Express. And it looks back to Aberdeen in the 1970s. So we've got the, um, just looking through it now, we've got the, um, you know, the impact of the oil industry in there. Um, oh, there's a picture of uh, Torrey Fishing Village being knocked down. Ah, uh, there's a bit about the music scene in the 70s. Apparently David Barry played at the music hall. <laughs> Um, it says that you got a lukewarm reception. Ah, yes, and here it is. Um, a six-page spread on Brenda Page's murder. Uh, so we've got, you know, lots of pictures of her. There's one of her husband and her on her wedding day. Uh, we've got the photo fit with the headline, Have You Seen Him? Well, it obviously shows that this was a massive story at the time, the fact that they're you know, giving it all these pages. Um, it says, Grampian Police's investigations team worked around the clock to snare the killer of Dr. Brenda Page. OK, and then we've got a picture of Brenda getting into a car as her ex-husband Kit holds the door open for her. Um, you know, she's smiling and they both look really happy. Um, he's got like a dark suit on and he's got a flower in his lapel and she's got one of those big floppy hats that were really popular in the 70s and it just makes me wonder if this was maybe a picture of them going away in their honeymoon or something. I mean, she just looks so beautiful there with her long hair floating over her shoulders. The caption underneath reads, Dr Page's husband courteously holds open the door of a green mini clubman. I wonder why they mention the make of the car. The police were interested in the movements of a green mini countryman. Is this a coincidence? I asked journalist Graham Smith what he had heard in his investigation. I do remember there was a lot of focus on a car um, which was parked in Stonehaven while um, the person who travelled to, to Edinburgh um, made the journey. Uh, and he re-entered the car and he went on the way back and I believe that car belonged to Kit Harrison And how did you find that out? Can you remember? I can't, I can't no, remember now can't remember now That may have come from, the, from a police source uh, who are far more forthcoming in the old days before data protection 
So, in this episode, I told you what I found out about Brenda's escort work. Her friend Jessie said she was struggling financially and she needed extra money to pay her mortgage. From a visit to the newspaper archive in the library, I found out that police were keen to interview a man seen leaving Brenda's block of flats on the day she was murdered. But there was one main door for six flats. So how can they be sure this man was coming from Brenda's flat? I also discovered that police were keen to trace the owner of a green mini countryman, who, according to journalist Graham Smith, may have been Dr. Christopher Harrison, Brenda's ex-husband. So why were police interested in his movements on the night of her murder? I'll tell you what my investigation uncovered in the next episode. In episode three, I'll be hearing from three women very close to Brenda. What they said was revealing. And I must warn you, sometimes shocking. He, he stalked her, he followed her everywhere. She had to come out of her house and maybe go twice around the block in her car and keep looking to see if he was around. He did stalk her. She was terrified of her husband at that time. Why was Brenda terrified of her ex-husband? Join me next time to find out. Please help us spread the word on Brenda's story by rating, sharing and talking about this podcast. You can subscribe to hear other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Granite City is presented by me, Ruth Warrender, and produced by Jill Davis. It's mixed by Sean Kerwin and the music is composed and performed by David Hearn. It's a Wireless Studios production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.